Teach Me Something, the podcast where I learn about something I think is cool, and then I teach it to you so you can think it's cool too. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. So this week, episode, I guess now it's bi-weekly I have to say, this episode. This bi-weekly episode. <laughs> yes. This semi-monthly, well it's not even perfectly semi-monthly, so bi-weekly yeah, is the only good confusing. descriptor. Yeah. Let's, be, let's be clear mm-hmm. here. And to be clear, I'm going to talk about birds. Birds. Um, bird behaviors and adaptations. Part one of two. Oh, um, okay. Another one of these, but I'm pretty f- definite here. One of two, because... That's next a pretty bold e- statement. Uh, <laughs> don't get me started, but next episode, part two of two, is going to be all about bird song and just bird song. So we're not going to talk about birdsong at all in uh, this episode of Bird Behaviors. Got it. Um, But I do just think birds are cool. And I want to know why they do the things they do and how they do those things. And so it's, again, probably way too big of a topic for a whole episode. So this is a very kind of like, I don't want to say disjointed. I'm trying to organize it's it, like but this a, is just like, here's stuff I think is cool. It's like a review article. Yeah. Not necessarily yeah. a, a, you know, primary source. There's a whole lot, you know, of adaptations. A whole genre of, <laughs> okay. like, animals can have. So, yeah. Perfect. Um, well, yeah. how about you teach me something? Awesome. So, we were just at the zoo. We were we just were. at the zoo. And you've probably once in your life been to a zoo as well or seen a bird and you may have seen a bird doing this behavior in the wild but the best like example of this behavior is usually a flamingo most people Mm -hmm. haven't seen a wild flamingo but okay most people we know haven't seen a wild (laughs) flamingo i hope other people do eventually listen to my podcast but fair enough i don't know (laughs) and so you probably saw a flamingo at the zoo at some point in your life and you were like why is that bird standing on one leg? Or you made a terrible dad joke about the bird only having one leg. That's what's coming next, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the question is, why do birds stand on one leg? Mm, I, I don't think I would have been able to completely come up with this answer at all before I researched it. So do you have any guesses, Everett? Why not? Why not? That's how nature works. Yes, very much so. <laughs> So, what happens if you stood on one leg? I'd be a bird. You would probably fall over eventually, yes? I guess, but I was thinking it was more like one of those Holy Grail situations where, you know, how do we figure out if she's a witch? Oh. (laughs) Does she float? Because what else floats? A duck. So, if she weighs as much as a duck, one of those situations. If I stand on one leg, then obviously I'm a bird. I see. So if you were to stand on one leg, you'd probably feel a lot of your muscles working really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, your leg, but mostly your core, yes. Because as you tilt one way, your muscles contract on one side and relax on the other to pull you back to the center. And right. over and over, swaying in all directions, little tiny micro contractions of your muscles all the time. 
you get tired pretty quickly. Doesn't really make sense as a strategy for humans to stand on one leg to conserve energy or anything like that. Um, but birds, that's what they do. They relax on one leg uh, to save energy because that's half the muscle now. They only need one of their legs. So they can even sleep on one leg. Um, good. good for them. But no one really kind of looked into how that works mm -hmm. until kind of recently. Um, Dr. Chang from Georgia Tech, he was a, a physiologist, um, dissected two Caribbean flamingos in 2017 to examine their leg structure. Um, so flamingos have a pretty odd leg structure, even for a bird. The, the knee joint is um, underneath the feathers of the body. Like you wouldn't even know it was there. The joint that you see on a flamingo um, is like the ankle. So you see the calf, ankle, and foot of a flamingo. Okay. Which are, you know, ankle and calf are very long mm -hmm. and weird looking. But if you can imagine it, its hip and knee joint are both underneath the feathers. Yeah, so like tucked right up into the body, basically. Yes. So um, Dr. Chang positioned the flamingo skeleton on one leg. And its hip and knee joints kind of all naturally align. Okay. So that the foot is directly center under the body. Okay. And so they're just designed to just sit there like that. He could take the whole skeleton, put it on, on his, like his toes on his palm of his hand and hold it up and it would balance on one leg as a skeleton with no connective tissue or whatever. They are so perfectly made you know, pieces fit together so that they stand there on one leg and that's um, the and least energetically... It's just perfectly balanced. Pose. Exactly. Yeah. They don't have to use any muscle to keep them in that position. Um, so it can't possibly... Like, right, if a dead bird can do it, it can't possibly require... A whole lot of energy, energy. for a live bird to do <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, it would just be energetically favorable, favorable for them to just be dead. Yeah. So... Energy saving, that's one reason. Mm -hmm. um, so they can also, you know, warm up their leg by tucking it in to their feathers. And then like switching every once in a while? Exactly. Okay. So they have 50% less surface area to lose heat through because it's usually one of the only not feathered places of a bird, right? The foot yeah. or leg and foot. Um, so... Besides flamingos, other types of birds, we don't really know the exact physiological mechanisms about how they do the one leg thing so easily. Mm -hmm. um, some we know have like kind of a flexor tendon in their leg that completely locks into their into place. That's how they can kind of sleep and be semi-conscious without standing, putting energy into standing there, you know? Right. Um, Otherwise, there's things like herons, like wading birds. They are more likely to stand on one leg because they just want to blend in, right? They want... So one leg, they're wading. They're in the water trying to catch fish. Right. So if they're only on one leg, that's only one thing that they have to kind of blend in as like a reed in the water. Okay. You know, if there's two legs right next to each other, that's kind of a giveaway pattern for fish to recognize. Right, because reeds never are side by side in the water. <laughs> There's never a sure patch of they reeds. Are, Everett. Okay. Um, but you can see how it would be more favorable to only have one leg in the water 
over yes. two because fish could adapt to a general spacing of two things this far apart is just somewhere to stay away from. You know what I mean? Like it's yep. a pretty easy pattern. Indicator. Yeah. Sure. So one leg it helps them hunt. Um, so yeah, temperature regulation, hunting, energy saving. That's kind of the reason the birds stand on one leg. Um, but speaking of temperature, let's talk about some other adaptations that help keep birds warm. Okay. One of the most popular cold weather adaptations birds have is to use those wonderful wings and fly away, as mm. you may know. <laughs> yes. Um, at least 4,000 species of birds migrate. That's about 40% of the species in the world. So most, not by a lot, but most don't. Correct. Okay. But the number of birds that migrate obviously depends on the location. So yeah, if sure. you were to say the statement, most birds don't migrate, globally you'd be correct, but locally you'd be pretty incorrect because we live well, somewhere where most of here, our birds yeah. migrate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you lived in the tropics, almost none of the birds would migrate. Of course. Right. So it makes sense that most birds leave cold places. They need food. They need to, you know, don't want to deal with the elements. Why should they? They have wings. Yeah. That's kind of the... Yeah. So in far north regions like here or Scandinavia or something, most species will migrate in the temperate region like the UK. In the UK, about half their birds migrate. Sure. Um, in the tropics, like I said, almost none. But even here in the frozen north, we do get some birds that spend the winter with us. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot are here for fall and spring when we get freak snow timber storms and yeah. other things so they need they need adaptations to survive in the cold um even if they leave during the winter winter so my first question because you've seen a duck or a goose standing on the ice yes is is that sounds really cold uh, and how i have seen that how yes. do their feet not freeze because that's like their feet on ice is this one of those like you know the hulk my secret is I'm always mad sort of thing. Like their feet are always already just frozen. Well, it's kind of a trick question like that. Hmm. Like their feet just aren't capable of freezing. Sure. There's not flesh or muscle or anything. Just built so, up antifreeze. <laughs> not quite, but you so it's know. Like, it's like cartilage or like fingernail type of uh, keratin. Scales, which yeah. yes, can be made of keratin. Keratin, yeah. that's birds, the word. I mean, birds, so birds, legs, and feet and to some lesser extent depending on what type of bird they are legs um can just be made from like sinew and bones and scales like no flesh to freeze no muscle to freeze nothing like that um there are very few blood vessels so their feet can be very near the freezing point just hover right around that but never quite get cold enough because there's just nothing there's just nothing to freeze sure um and their body temperature is still in the high 30s Celsius. Birds generally hang out a little bit hotter than than human body temperature. Really? And they stay that way in, in the, you know, in the winter. Birds are, I hate to say the word warm-blooded because that's not really a scientific concept that we actually use. But I think that everyone <laughs> okay. was taught warm-blooded and cold-blooded yeah, yeah, in right, school. Right. So if you were to Layman's use those terms, terms basically. birds are warm-blooded. Okay. They regulate their temperature. Um, but they also use a real cool thing called countercurrent heat exchange. Mm. Ooh. 
So this means their veins and their arteries lie really close together, like touching, basically. Okay. So that heat can pass back and forth, diffuse from one to the other. Sure. So veins and arteries contain blood flowing in opposite directions. Correct. That's why it's called counter current. Counter as in opposite. Okay. Yeah. Counter current. Warm blood flows down the arteries from the heart. Yeah. Down to the feet and legs. Um, right next to the arteries touching them is the cold blood coming in the veins back to the heart from the feet. Mm-hmm. So we have a gradient. Um, we have a temperature difference. Sure. And um, where countercurrent has an advantage is that the, the warmth from the arteries gradually warms up the blood returning from the veins. Um, it, it maintains like a steadily declining, slowly declining gradient, as opposed to if they were running co-current or the same way, then it would kind of be a zero and 100 and dump all your heat at once. Um, it's a less efficient system. Okay. It leads to wasted potential. So in counter-current exchange, the birds aren't really heating their feet much at all. Right. But like I said, they don't need the heat. Um, so instead, they're returning more of that heat to their heart and the rest of their body that way. They're maintaining um, it more in, in their core mass than Yeah. So ba- basically, you don't have to really understand it. You just have to know counter-current exchange maximizes the amount of heat that they can transfer away from their feet back to their body. Sure. Um the downside is that most birds aren't have like that do this like a duck a duck leg you're not really going to have a calf muscle or like whatever so maybe your feet you're sacrificing some dexterity or other type of strength that you could have in your leg but they can have a pretty strong thigh muscle they just got to tuck it up under the feathers you know sure but so they uh, can like... swim well with it it just depends what you do with your feet right well, a but raptor m- most ducks aren't like trying out for the football team they don't need a lot of like foot dexterity they don't need foot dexterity that's what i'm saying what they do need is to swim and they use their powerful thigh muscles tucked under their feathers for that but say sure. a raptor you can probably picture hawks and eagles in your head that have much feathers on their foot. legs yeah all the way down to their foot so they can protect those important muscles with feathers and that's what allows them to have a more agile strong foot which they need for their lifestyle right sure um and uh well yeah okay sorry i already kind of said an example of a bird like i said that would have a bare leg as a duck and then one with feathers is kind of a raptor so again it's based on what they need to do of course um and 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 feathers as anyone that's had a feather duvet or pillow will know is they're warm they're really good at insulating things. Um, when a bird fluffs its feathers up, it's doing that to warm up. It's adding air space between its feathers and their skin. Mm-hmm. Um, an air pocket, which helps to retain their body heat. So um, they've done studies that showed birds can increase their heat retention by 30% by fluffing their feathers. Oh, okay. Right? So when you see That's little cool. birds shaking and fluffing, they're just cold. Poor little guys. <laughs> Another adaptation to the cold is to grow more feathers. In the Seems winter. legit. So a chickadee might have around 1,000 feathers in the summer, but closer to 2,000 feathers in the winter, for mm-hmm. example. Um, shivering is another common bird adaptation, which 
it's not quite like human shivering. I was going to ask, is it like effectively the same no. adaptation? It's not. Um, so birds shiver. I'm going to put this in air quotes. Almost constantly in the winter. And they produce heat five times the rate they normally would with this shivering. So no, okay. we're, we are nowhere near as good at the... We waste a lot of our shivering energy by moving too much. Okay. Right. So um, you want your muscles to activate. But you want to, you want the energy they create to come off as heat instead of as kinetic energy, as movement. Okay. Yes? Yeah. So when birds shiver, they activate opposing muscle groups at the same time. So they they stay perfectly still. Yeah. They're just like, you know, one pulls you, one pushes you basically. And they're equalizing those forces. So they're activating their muscles. They're using energy to do this, yes, mm-hmm. but they're turning it almost straight into heat. Okay. Um, so that's pretty cool. Some birds save energy by allowing the you know internal thermostat to drop pretty low. Hummingbirds enter a state called torpor every night. And torpor is when you allow the body temperature to drop really close to the ambient temperature around you. Um, torpor is not really common in winter birds. Because it's just too too cold. That's risky. Um, Because the morning warm-up would just take too much extra energy for them. Sure. So some species like um, the black-capped chickadee would reduce their body temperature overnight. Uh, They call it regulated hypothermia. And they they can drop them by up to like 12 or 13 degrees Celsius. That's a lot. But they just don't go down to the ambient temperature. Okay. Right. Um, And, you know, again, like I said before, a bird will normally have an internal body temperature between like... 39 and 43 celsius something around there time um, yeah birds run hot yeah birds run hot and and that costs energy like all these things cost a lot of energy these shivering processes these um just being a bird hot being hot <laughs> costs yeah. energy that's why birds are just eating all the time like all the time birds need to eat um they don't have much fat or fat storage capability sure they can store a max of about like 24 hours of energy with the exception of some birds like a penguin. They're okay. pretty special. Okay. Um, anyway. I assume also if they're not flying, then the, some of the needs for energy storage probably go down a little bit too. Mm, it depends. If you're shivering, if you're doing other behaviors like that, that costs a lot of energy. I'm if just thinking more like, a... A, like an ostrich or something like that. Probably wouldn't have the same... You're getting I mean, I'm into, speculating now. You're getting so. into physics here because larger animals have different energy needs. Yeah. And actually lower basal metabolic rates because it's more efficient to be a larger animal. Birds are usually tiny animals. Typically. They have high BMRs. Yeah. So I'm just a lot of activities birds do are very costly. Sure. So yes, flying is one of them, but it's not like the only one or even the most costly sometimes, depending on how much they flap and how much they glide Mm -hmm. so um the whole birds eat a lot thing i I have a small sidetrack to go here so birds have an extremely high metabolic rate we are just this came came up organically it was my next bullet point i obviously knew that um hummingbirds have metabolic rates almost 100 times higher than elephants that's what happens when you have to beat your wings 80 times a second. Whereas elephants don't have to beat their wings at all. <laughs> Zero times a second. Yeah. 80 times a second is the fastest 
wing beat rate of any hummingbird. So of any bird, obviously. Yeah. That is the amethyst wood star hummingbird. Giant hummingbirds, on the other hand, are the slowest. They mm. only beat their wings 15 times a second. Slackers. I know. Lazy. Lazy bones right there. Mm-hmm. 15 times a second. So hummingbirds have to eat between one and a half and three times their own body weight every day. There's a lot of nectar. (laughs) Yeah. So bird flight takes a lot of energy, which was my next line. So again, you're just in my brain. That's how it works. Um, But so does growing feathers. Feathers actually, by the way, are much, much more energetically costly to grow than fur, for example. Okay. Um, More complex structure. Yeah, they're very complicated. Yeah. yeah. And they have to replace them all the time by molting, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, But I do want to kind of, like, we have to stop here and talk about penguins, right? It's impossible to talk about cold weather adaptations in birds without mentioning penguins. That's not impossible. Um, We could just skip it. But I think that would be silly. You said my next line, so I'm just going to keep going. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well... But I think that would be silly, so let's not go there. Yes, exactly. It's funny that you already made a Monty Python reference, and I was going to make that one, but you've cut on already, and I have another one later. I'll see if I can catch it or not. (laughs) You you may be able to already predict which other bird reference I could have got from Monty Python, but... um... Uh, I'll just swallow my pride and (laughs) see if it comes up or not. Good, you... You do that. <laughs> I don't know if it'll be my African swallow or a European swallow that I'll have to make, but it's okay. If you ruin my joke, oh man. Uh, yeah. I worked hard on that next one. Okay. So to be a warm, warm-blooded, we'll put this in air quotes again, a warm-blooded mm-hmm. animal in a cold climate, the rule is you need to be pretty big. The smallest Antarctic penguin, the rock hopper, is actually fairly hefty for a bird, two and a half kilograms. Birds, as you may or may not know, are pretty light in general so that they can fly. Right. And they usually have hollow bones to accomplish this, so they're very light. Mm-hmm. Um, so two and a half kilograms is, is kind of a chonky bird. Hefty. <laughs> the Adelaide and Emperor penguins um, live more in the deep south where it's even colder. Um, adults weigh about five kilograms in the Adelaide penguins and about 30 kilograms. For the the emperor penguin. So we're talking like 66 pound penguin. Um, The imagery that one website used was, you should imagine an overweight 10 year old child, but with man sized chest chest measurements. (laughs) And now imagine that child waddling and (laughs) you have an emperor penguin. Perfect. Yeah. So setting that unsettling image aside, let's get back to size. It's important to be large because large animal animals have a smaller surface area to volume ratio. Right. So they have less relative area mm-hmm. from which to lose their heat. Yes. That is why animals in the north tend and south, deep south, tend to be bigger than mm-hmm. animals in the tropics. This is just a rule it's of animals. Energetically favorable. This is a thing, yes. They have shorter limbs. It's mm-hmm. another rule of things in the north. Compared to a similar species, proportionally the limbs will be shorter. You want your extremities to be short. Yep. It's hard to heat them. You want to be bulky. Yeah. So, um, penguin 
if you didn't know this, some people didn't realize this and it's perfectly fine because they don't really look like it, but penguins do have feathers. Yes. Yes. Um, they aren't like the large flat feathers that flying birds have. Um, they're very short with like this under layer of like woolly down, very fine woolly down. And then the waterproof feathers on top kind of thing. Yep. Um, penguin feathers are really good at shedding the water from the sea. They overlap and give like really streamlined effect in the water for the swimming and deflect the wind really well. Um, and then when it gets cold, they can do what other birds can and puff out their feathers to give a larger layer of warmth um, in the air there. With, I assume at that point, like some air between the feathers to act as a, like a insulator. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's the goal of fluffing the feathers to yeah. get more air into the little pocket yeah. in their feathers between their skin. And um, so feathers are actually the most efficient insulators uh, on a weight for weight basis. But they can be ruffled by the wind, even though, like I said, the overlap does help that. This is Antarctica we're talking about. It's the windiest place in the world. Mm-hmm. Feathers are also much... Not Winnipeg, but <laughs> no, close. It's, 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 it's safe to say it's a little bit worse. Okay. Uh, feathers are much less useful when they're wet as well, when it comes to wind deflecting capabilities. Sure. So what really keeps a penguin warm in the whole sea and wind situation is their subcutaneous layer of fat. Subcutaneous meaning under, under skin. skin. Yes. Yeah. And I assume that's also relatively unique to penguins over other birds. Exactly. As they said. Penguins, remember what I said before, most birds don't hold more than 24 hours of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about emperor penguins later, it's more like 114 days or something, if I remember. So, okay. so yeah, a third of a year. quite different, um, especially with the emperors. Uh, that, you know, so they can have a layer of fat that's about 30% of their body weight. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If you had 30% body fat, you would, I mean, Not people do that, people do that well. all the time. We have a lot of people in the world with 30% body fat. 30% seems I'm, pretty high. I, I don't know. I don't me, know. Women that well. have a high body fat percentage and there's a lot of overweight people in the world, including, sure. you know, me. <laughs> so things do happen. Yeah, but all I'm saying is that, yes, it would be a lot of fat for a person to have as well. Okay. Yes, yes. Got it. Um, penguins can kind of hunch down and use that fat and feather layer to, like, plop plop it over their feet <laughs> okay. to protect them when it's really cold and really windy. Um, they also have that countercurrent exchange we talked about in their feet. Um, they reduce the amount of contact they make with the snow or ice. So they can do that because a few types of penguins, like the king and emperor penguins, have a really, like, stiff tail feathers. Okay. And they're kind of designed in this little, like, kickstand. <laughs> and they can just tip backwards slightly and just be on the tips of their heels and rest on their tail feather kickstand and, and, and just, like, be a little penguin tripod. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that helps them to make less contact with the cold ground. Um, emperor penguins. I believe mm, the exist. majority of people know the most about emperor penguins. Okay. There's the whole March of the Penguins thing and the drama of the March to the Sea. and uh, So they huddle together in windstorms to reduce the surface area that's exposed to the wind. I mean, remember when I said it was the windiest place in the world? So winds there can get up to 325 kilometers an hour. Meh. That's not super common, though. Um... Commonly, Emperor Penguin is facing about 200 kilometer an hour winds. That's the general 
uh, wind speed on a windier than average day in Antarctica. So just a Formula One car. Oh dear. Of wind. That sounds miserable. Blasting Not into cool. you. Yeah. Um, so groups of thousands of the penguins huddle together and constantly rotate, which are on the outside and which are on the inside. Right. Um, they recently found out penguins in these huddles don't touch each other. They just don't quite touch each other. Because if they were to touch each other, they could compress the feathers and make that insulating layer thinner. Mm-hmm. So they hardly touch at all or touch as lightly as possible. Somehow they all know to just kind of gently not yeah sure it's pretty cool um and so emperor penguin males don't eat the whole time they're in this huddle incubating their eggs they have to live off their fat for four months in minus 30 degrees celsius mm-hmm. 200 kilometer hour winds and total darkness so they're probably not going to do a whole lot to expend energy during that time <laughs> no S- stay still yeah Move to the outside, move to the inside. Waking move hibernation, to the outside, basically. Move to the inside, yeah. I mean, they need to save a lot of energy wherever they can. When the females come back, they still have to march 100 kilometers to the sea, and then they can finally catch something to eat. They actually have to expend energy catching food, right? So, yeah, yeah an individual penguin would need to burn 200 grams of fat a day to maintain their body temperature at 38 degrees Celsius. But in the huddle... A penguin only needs to burn 100 grams of fat a day. So you can see how effective that strategy is. Yeah. That's good. Okay, but a lot lot more birds obviously live where it's warm than where it's cold. So birds need to stay cool too. And how do they do that? Air conditioning. That was actually in the source book. That was the first line. Birds don't have air conditioning like we do. So they go in the shade and the bird bath. They should have invented it then. Or made more money. <laughs> Survival of the fittest. Birds don't need air conditioning. They have adaptations. Okay. Like going in the shade or the bird bath. But I feel like going in the shade is not a really it's big brain under kind every of adaptation. Page of every animal's adaptations for cooling down. Okay. They get out of the sun. I know. It's like a Good. duh. Thanks, Captain Obvious. Okay. So birds breathe in and out really fast to stay cool. It's like panting, but not exactly like panting. Um, they call it's called, if you want to be fancy and use the fancy science name, gular fluttering. Um, I'll opt not to. Which is like gular it's like the throat area. Okay. Okay. So it's common in nocturnal insectivores like the common nighthawk and the whippoorwill. Have you heard of a bird called a whippoorwill? I don't think so. I've definitely heard of a whippoorwill, but I thought it was a whippoorwill. But actually, this bird is called and spelt whip poor will. Like, oh, poor will, we're going to whip him. That's how it's spelt. And that is the bird's name. Um, So I thought that was kind of weird. And I wanted yeah. to look this up. Who doesn't like Will that poor much? Will. Well, but they're sympathetic to him because they're going to whip poor Will. Mm, okay. Um, anyways, so story time. They call at night and they're named after their call, which apparently people think sounds exactly like the words whip poor Will. And I went on YouTube and okay. I looked up whipper Will call. Okay. And I was like, all right. Like, I mean... The melody, but doesn't sound like words. <laughs> like I don't, I don't understand how everyone's so convinced it sounds like this thing. So you know, if you're curious, go look up "whip poor will." 
okay. on YouTube. Um, some First Nations folktales say that the Whippoorwill is an omen of death, possibly because of its haunting song. And by the way, I also didn't find it haunting when I was mm. <laughs> listening to it. So maybe I'm just immune to this call of death. Maybe. There was actually a You're lot. You're therefore immortal. There was a lot of First Nations mythology, like different tribes and stuff about the Whippoorwill. It was kind of cool, actually. Okay. But not a bird adaptation. So I'm going to keep going. Fluttering, the gular fluttering, is a combination of, like, rapid open mouth breathing and, like, vibrating the moist, moist throat membrane. That's a tough one to say. Moist okay. throat membrane. Um, they're trying to cause evaporation. Okay. Got it. And evaporative cooling is a really good strategy to use. Yep. Um, excess heat will leave the body with each exhalation and the bird gets to cool down. Um, it's often seen in like double crested cormorants as well, owls, morning doves, because they often rest in the hottest time of the day and sleep. Um, birds in really hot areas will have lower metabolic rates. When you're talking about ostrich before, they would have a pretty low metabolic rate being a yep. large animal and a hot weather animal. Makes sense. Um, so they produce less body heat. They don't have to pant. Some birds, like vultures, they have bare skin patches on their legs or their face, their feet, wherever. And they could even, like, swell those patches the hotter that they get to increase the surface area. Right. And just have, like, more surface area to lose heat from. Okay. Um, So, vultures, speaking of vultures, are one of those birds. And they also urinate on their legs to stay cool. Which is a type, another type of evaporative cooling called step on a jellyfish or? urohydrosis. They did not step on a jellyfish. Just for fun then. And, well, and cooling. It doesn't work for stepping on a jellyfish, by the way. No one pee on yourselves or have someone pee on you. And, unless that's your thing. And then, like, I'm not going to yuck your yum. But, like, don't, don't do that if you expect it pain to stop. I think vinegar yeah. is the... I think vinegar... All the pieces of well, Australia and like those beaches have a first aid station with whatever you're supposed to actually use, but it's definitely okay. not urine, by the way. Um, so yes, evaporative cooling called urohydrosis. And I would like to point out, as you may know, that bird urine and bird feces are not t- different. Mm-hmm. Birds don't have different urine and feces. So while all the web pages say things like urinating on their legs, no, they're pooping on their legs. That's what it is, because it's all the same, and it comes out of the cloaca, yeah. and it's all the same. So vultures poop on their legs to stay cool. Yeah. Um, other species, like the black-necked stilt, they wet their feathers in a stream or puddle and then return to their nest and kind of, like, flap the water around the nest to cool down the babies. Okay. Um, shorebirds, you know, will stand in the water to lose heat, and they'll put both their legs down in the water oh, when they need to they cool down. Oh, but they can't catch anything. Exactly. They can't uh, eat and cool down at the same time. Their life's so hard. Yeah, impossible. Fun fact. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, the most heat-tolerant bird is the African skimmer, which lives in a place where there's normally 40 degrees Celsius air temperatures and 60 degrees Celsius ground temperatures. So the ground is so hot that... For them not to burn the chicks and the eggs when it comes back to the nest, it has to um, skim its feet in the water and splash water onto its belly while it's flying home to kind of be wet and cool when it gets back. Otherwise, it'll be too hot and they've actually, it's Mm. dangerous to their eggs. Interesting. Um, It's called belly soaking. Okay. Funny scientists coming up with these (laughs) clever names. Very scientific action. Well, 
name for an action. Mm -hmm. So I know I talked a little bit about feathers earlier, but I wanted to dig just a little deeper, seeing as feathers are probably the most defining feature of birds, of this group of animals. Um, They need to take really good care of their feathers. Like they have properties, the insulating properties and flight stats that that aren't going to be maintained if they're not really like pristine, Mm -hmm. a well-oiled machine, you may say. Um, Ooh, you may literally say that because they do oil their feathers. Clever. (laughs) So how do birds stay clean? I think you've probably seen a bird take a bath in a bird bath. I have. That's a way that birds stay clean, but not all birds bathe the same way. Um, Swallows and swifts fly really low along the surface of a body of water so that they skim through the water's surface. And these birds can fly pretty fast. So they get, you know, kind of a good wash, right. power wash, zooming through there. Plus it's fun. Speaking of swallows going pretty fast, it's now time for my Monty Python fun fact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I looked up the airspeed of an unladen swallow. Good. And I found a lot of people doing physics trying to figure out the answer to this exact question, as you might imagine. Unladen, though, without the coconut. Unladen. Okay. And oh, some there were some people that were trying to figure out the laden dynamics, but I thought that was silly and not true to the movie. So, an unladen swallow. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. There is a European swallow, but there's not really an African swallow. There is one called the West African swallow and one called the South African swallow. Those are the two types of swallow named after Africa. Okay. But we don't have good enough data to calculate for either of them. Hmm. So we're going to assume a European swallow. And we're going to say their unladen airspeed is 20 miles an hour. Okay. The other caveat to this, you know, scene in the movie is that there are 71 other species of swallow. So when King Arthur asked African or European, that was... mm, that was not really a ambiguous at y- best. Yeah, and an accurate portrayal of the number of swallows. Oh. Um, so what I would like to say is you're welcome, because now if you meet any gatekeepers for any bridges of death, you will be able to stump them, just like King Arthur, but better, more accurate, with your knowledge of swallows. Okay. You're welcome. I, I thank you on behalf of everyone. You Everywhere. won't get thrown into a, a void unless, yeah, see the capital of, oh, what was it? Assyria? <laughs> I, don't, I don't recall. <laughs> I think it was Assyria? I don't know. And I think I read somewhere that it has four capitals, so that's a really trick question. Hmm. Back to birdbath. <laughs> Robins. Right, right. Birdbath. <laughs> Robins <laughs> nearly immerse themselves in water when they're bathing. They throw water over their head and their back, and like water birds, like ducks, will quickly dunk their whole body underwater and shake off like a dog. Um, but if there's no water available, birds will take a dust bath. Okay. Which sounds counterintuitive, likely. But mm. what it is is that the fine dust particles will um, collect the larger dirt particles and kind of make big particles of dirt that will just fall off when they shake. Yeah. So they roll around the dust for a while, then they shake all, all off, and, and they're actually pretty clean afterwards. Um, so when a feather gets in bad shape and it needs replacing or... A bird changes its plumage seasonally or at mating time or whatever, then a bird's going to molt. Molting is replacing their feathers. Mm -hmm. 
And most birds molt just a few feathers at a time so that they're not flightless and uh, Yeah, without a set of right. feathers, feathers at any time. Yeah. yeah. So the old feathers are pushed out by new ones coming in, just like when a kid loses a tooth. Okay. Kind of pushed right out of there. Um, a few species of bird, though, mostly the water birds, will molt all at once. And so they oh. would be flightless. But they're okay, right? Because they're water birds. They'll just swim to open water to avoid predators or hide in the shore vegetation kind of thing. Okay. Um, they're pretty They're pretty okay without being able to fly. Small song, or like small birds like songbirds, um, they molt annually or twice a year if they change plumage for breeding season or not. Okay. Um, but feathers are really hard to grow. As I said, they take a lot of energy. So they can only molt, birds will only molt when they're not doing any other energy expensive activity. So they don't molt around the time they lay eggs or the time that they're going to migrate or the time that they're going to breed. Yeah, only Um, when they're willing to like sit on the couch and binge Netflix. Exactly. Um, Preening is probably one of the most important things birds do to take care of their feathers. Mm -hmm. That's, um, they all kind of use similar behaviors when they preen. They'll fluff up, shake their feathers, which kind of helps to re-zip the feather barbs that have become unhooked from each other. Mm-hmm. They will pull each feather through their beak and nibble it from the base to the tip. So all this realigning the barbs of the feathers makes them less likely to get broken. It makes sure they provide optimal insulation and aerodynamics. So you can think about um, how feathers work. Like, like there's Velcro. Like these barbs are like little tiny Velcro hooks that keep feathers together. So a bird can just kind of um, push them back together almost in the, in the right way. And then when you see a bird nibbling on itself, there's like a, like a particularly stubborn feather or stubborn area that won't go back together. And it's kind of nibbling it back. It is nibbling. Yeah. Um, It's getting it back together. So that's, that's kind of cool. Think about feathers having little Velcro on them. That's cool. Um, And while preening, they use their beaks. They get preen oil from a gland at the base of their tail called the uropigial gland and they rub oil on all their feathers so it keeps them from getting dry and brittle mm-hmm. and for water birds that's really really helpful right because it's, it's, it's what hydrophobic keeps, yeah, exactly that's what keeps them waterproof the whole water off a duck's back and all that <laughs> yes um birds will also use this chance to pick off ectoparasites with their with their beak you know mites ticks that kind of thing yeah um so the other thing I wanted to mention feather-wise was actually about wings. You know, birds fly. I should mention that at some point. I should kind of go into that this. That they have wings. I'm not going to talk about how they fly because that's... I find physics is hard to explain with no visual aids. Okay. Um, and uh, I find physics hard to understand with no <laughs> visual aids. So I think it would be mean of me to have visual aids and try to explain it to you <laughs> verbally. We're not going to talk about how flight happens. But what about wing shape what about like variation in wings okay i thought that was cool so wing shape is going to tell you like a, a whole lot about how and where a bird lives its life short broad-winged birds are typically forest dwellers that frequently feed while on the ground and need high maneuverability to make tight twists and turns through the trees mm-hmm. this type of bird um will will be the kind that needs to take off quickly, like burst directly into the air from a ground or, or perch. That's the kind of wing that can do that for them. The wing tips of a bird like this, um, like a warbler, for example, has this type of wing. 
the wingtips will be rounded and flexible. Okay. And has kind of... So birds have categories, I guess, in how their characteristics of their feathers. And one category is that they can have slots between the feathers or no slots. And there's different advantages to each condition. Okay. Um, so... I believe you. This type of songbird, like, they will have slots between their feathers. That means the individual feathers can be isolated and turned, which gives a quite high degree of maneuverability. Mm-hmm. They don't have to turn the whole wing. They can individually control small sections or even one feather to, to make a slight adjustment in the air. As you can imagine, that makes them quite agile. Yeah, but I would assume that it would make it less energetically favorable to fly and much more difficult to like glide or do long distance or that type of thing. Right. I mean, it's, it's like when you're building a character for... um. Uh, I want to try to sound smart at video games, but I'm not going to. For a game where you give your character stats and you can choose which stats and how much of each stat, you can't just like max them at 100 of everything. There's like a stat balance. However the games work, every game has different mechanics, but mm-hmm. there's some mechanics that you have to balance your stats with. You'd basically have to level up to end game to, you know, <laughs> make it super bird. Yes, because I don't think there any such bird exists that has high stats and all these things. Everything's a trade-off, right? Well, just none of them have played long enough. You haven't leveled up all the way. Um, So like swifts and swallows, again, which feed on flying insects. They have to catch flying insects out of the air. Um, They're known with by their familiar like triangle fighter jet shaped wings. So small raptors like falcons, which also hunt by catching small prey out of the air, like, you know, insects again, or even small birds, um, have the same wing shape. So this wing shape indicates you're going to be catching something out of the air that moves fast. So you've got to be able to move real fast in the air, really quick, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so their wings are flat, moderately long. They have long slots between their feathers, and they're kind of a swept back, for, like their shoulders are swept backwards. Um, all of this with the aerodynamic triangle shape make them like perfect aerial acrobatic wings. Um, hummingbirds obviously have very distinctive wings. Mm-hmm. And they're very different than other bird wings. If you, it's something I didn't really think about until I was writing this. Um, so think about how most birds' wings have a little bend. You know, they go out and there's a little bend and they mm-hmm. go back a little bit. Like when you're drawing the really lazy seagull on your drawing as you're a little it's kid, you M. draw like a little M, right? They have yeah. a little bend in their wing, yeah? Yep. So that's technically um, the wrist joint, that bend. That's the bird's wrist joint, and that's where they usually have a bend in their or a rotation in their wing. That's where their wing rotates from. I'm I'm making the motion. You can't see it. I don't know why I'm doing it, it, but it is entertaining. Hummingbirds don't have that joint. Just think about a hummingbird wing for a second. They're just straight back, like they don't have that bend at all. Right. Um, So they're pointed. They're swept back, and they rotate at the shoulder, not the wrist. So the shoulder rotation is the key to what lets hummingbirds hover. Um, they, they need that rotation so they can turn their wings completely over and do a backward stroke mm-hmm. and a forward stroke that completely cancel each other out. They have to be equal yeah, in order and to opposite hover. angles, right? So they need that full range of rotation, which other birds won't have because they don't rotate the shoulder. Correct. Um, another, you know thing dependent on wing shape um, is that why some birds have to flap 
and some birds can really just glide and stay like aloft really easily. Um, so that's about the aspect ratio of the wing. Getting all physics-y again here. So aspect ratio is just the ratio of the wing length to the wing width. Mm-hmm. A long, narrow wing, for example, high aspect ratio. If the length and the width um, approach an equal amount, which is as extreme as you're going to find it, right? That's a low aspect ratio. Yep. So high aspect ratios are best for gliding. Eagles, vultures, they have this type of wing. Long, narrow, low aspect ratios are good for providing more thrust during takeoff. So this is another one of those min-max stat adjustment things. Kind of high both. You can have high one and low the other. Or you can kind of have medium of both. Sure. Um, Medium aspect ratios occur in like wading birds, like a sandpiper. Um that gives them average stats for takeoff and for gliding. Makes sense. The birds that don't glide well are things like songbirds. They need to take off quickly. They don't need to be gliding around searching for prey. That's not what they do. Um, the other thing about birds that is not unique at all to birds, but pretty distinctive when we think about birds, is eggs. That, that's true, yeah. Definitely not unique to birds, but no. bird eggs. Why do they hatch when they hatch? Why do they hatch at the same time? Do they hatch at the same time? These were questions I had. So, females um, of different species have different strategies. Surprise. <laughs> yes. Um, some females, they're going to lay... So, le- birds lay like an egg a day kind of thing. Takes a oh, while to okay. make an egg. Yeah, yeah. Takes a while. But so, they don't lay a bunch of, at one time. Can't really do it. Okay. Can't really do it. So... Most birds are going to lay one egg a day, but they don't want to brood one egg. No. With waste. So they lay however many eggs? Three, six, eight, whatever it is. Over the course of a week or two weeks or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they... But all the eggs hatch at the same time. Right. So how? How do they pull that off? Temperature control? Um, yeah, pretty much. So the why of it all is pretty obvious once you start to think about the logistics of bird reproduction. A mother bird needs to incubate her eggs, but once they hatch, she needs to feed them. Mm -hmm. Generally. There's some birds that are more independent, right? But generally, she needs to feed them. So how is she going to go get food to feed them if she has other eggs that haven't hatched yet that she has to incubate? So then the ones that hatch earlier just die or something? or the Yeah. So not great. They should probably hatch at the same time. Um, another factor to consider is that a bird that just, like, if it hatches one day later than its other nest mates, that it's going to be at a really huge competitive disadvantage just because of how fast birds grow. Um, if a chick, on the other hand, comes early, like a day early, they could outcompete all the other chicks and lower the fitness of the whole nest. Um, so a lot of birds do try to coordinate the hatching of their eggs. And how this happens, like you said, is temperature control. Because freshly laid eggs are really tolerant to cold conditions. Okay. If they've not been warmed yet, then they can last for quite a while. Think about most countries in the world don't refrigerate their (laughs) eggs like we do. Think about they can just kind of sit there. Um, They're in like a standby mode. Yeah. Waiting to be activated by by the heat, by incubation, yes. Understandable. So incubation kickstarts the egg development. But there are other birds. They don't do this because there always is exceptions, yes. 
herons, cranes, cormorants, raptors, they will incubate whatever egg as soon as it's laid. They'll just keep mm. laying more eggs and incubate them until they're at whatever nest size that they want. Um, this leads to a really high degree of siblicide, which as yeah. you can imagine is siblings killing siblings. Yes. Um, which the parents often encourage. I'm not going to say fortunately or unfortunately, this is nature. Nature's brutal. Yeah. It's a survival of the fittest. It's almost like a test. They want, they like, they don't care if only one baby comes out of that nest. It's, but it's going to be the strongest one. So sometimes they kind of even encourage that type of competition. Um, you'll find that they, their strategy is just to invest heavily in the best offspring. They right. almost use it as a death match to see who the best one is. And then they'll help raise that one. They'll yeah. be like, okay, you're worthy. We'll raise you. Um, <laughs> so incubation, incubation, adding heat to the eggs. But what I didn't know is that birds molt feathers from their lower abdomen so that the skin is exposed where they're going to sit on the egg. So they can transfer more heat. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't think about that. That makes sense, right? Yeah. So it's called a brood patch or an incubation patch, but um, it becomes infused with blood. Like, so like more mm-hmm. blood vessels will go down there, easier to heat things up. Um, one or both parents might incubate. So you might have both with this molting brood patch uh, and depending on the species of bird it could be like a week or two like in songbirds they hatch really quickly or two months in emperor penguins for example all right that's a long time yes um the cool thing their brood patch has sensory nerves that tells them if their eggs are at the right temperature or not some ornithologists to figure this out they had these special copper eggs in the bird's nest that they could just monitor the temperature of and they noted how the bird was keeping it at an exact constant temperature by doing whatever, moving around and fanning yeah. and sitting and all the... It was, it was a very cool experiment. Um, distribute that heat evenly, though, and prevent um, sticking, basically, onto the egg. Like, their tissue from sticking onto the egg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they turn the egg often. Um, or, like, bush tits, they glue their eggs to the bottom of this, like, hanging nest. I guess. Okay. Like, it almost looks kind of like a grass stalking hanging from a tree branch. Okay. Um, to prevent it from breaking because they lie somewhere it's really windy. So it kind of allows it to blow around, but gently and not fall off a tree. And uh, that kind of like takes care of that air exchange. But I thought that was a, a cool, cool method. Yeah. Um, the Australian Mallee fowl or brush turkey is a cool exception. It doesn't incubate its eggs by sitting on them. Instead, it builds like a big compost pile of leaves and twigs mm. and okay. lays its eggs in the pile. And anyone that composts might have experienced that it can get pretty warm with all that decomposition. So it kind of like, it like tends, like tends it like a fire almost. It stokes it, it turns it, it makes sure the eggs stay at the proper temperature. It stays there the whole time. It just doesn't sit on them. Okay. Yeah. Um, so how do the chicks know when it's time to hatch? Like how does hatching start? I don't want to get too technical. But it's, it's triggered by running out of food. When the yolk is gone, the yolk is okay. the food in the egg for the baby chick. And as it eats it, obviously eliminates it. So when it's gone, it's time to hatch. That's the basic math. So there's the same amount of yolk in all the eggs. And that's kind of why eggs will hatch at the same time. But also there's more to it that we're really not sure about yet. Um, 
Chicks of some species will make noises like cheeping and peeping inside the egg a day or two before they hatch. And it seems like they are coordinating their hatching somehow. Cool. Um, they all start to scrape the egg tooth back and forth along the egg. So the egg tooth is that little knob on top of their beak that helps break through the egg that they'll lose yep. off their beak when they grow older. Um, that scraping also can help coordinate the egg hatching. We don't really know how. Uh, we also know, like, for example, ducklings that are about to hatch can somehow communicate to their mother through their shell um, to get her to turn the egg so that the hatchling isn't upside down hatching. So, like, if they are upside down, they can somehow communicate that and she'll turn them over. Cool. Other birds might do the same. So all this communication is super cool and I wish we knew some more about it yet. Um, but the last thing I think is cool and is egg-related bird phenomenon is brood parasitism. Yeah, it is cool. Yeah. So when a bird lays her eggs in the nest of another bird, it doesn't even have to be the same species of bird for this to work. Um, There are actually like hilarious pictures all over the internet, if you want to look, of baby birds in in a nest together. And one is like three times the size of all the other ones because it's a different type of bird. Or it's like two to three times the size of the parent. And yet they're just like, feed me. Sure, I'll take care of you. You're clearly my baby. Yeah. (laughs) Odd. Um. Cliff swallows are an example of a bird that parasitizes its own species only. It'll sometimes lay eggs in the nests of their neighbors. Sometimes it'll even just toss out whatever eggs it finds in there and then lay its eggs. Um, But most brood parasites parasitize other species and um, will specialize. So they'll have only one or a few host species that they will lay eggs in those nests. Um, but the cool, there's always exceptions, like I just said, and the cool one is cowbirds. Because four to five types of the parasitic cowbirds are generalists. So they parasitize a wide range of different other bird species. Okay. Um, and FYI, the one out of five that doesn't and is a specialist is called the screaming cowbird. Hmm. And I thought the call would be really cool. Like it would be like a scream. It's okay. Again. Just a really... It's not as cool as the name suggests it would yeah. be. Like a really ornery moo. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. They're definitely called a cowbird because they moo. That's that's canon. We just we just made that a thing. That's right. It's not true. Um, but you said okay. it was canon. <laughs> just on our podcast. Okay. So just... Uh, I, I know that no one needs this information, but I'm going to tell you that those three species that the screaming cowbird parasitizes are bay wings, choppy blackbirds, and brown and yellow marshbirds. Okay. Seems like a good selection. Now you know. Um, so conversely, we have the brown-headed cowbird, whose eggs have been found in the nests of 221 different species of birds. So, so a handful. Generalist for sure, you could say. Um, they don't even bother to make their own nests. Like, they've never... They don't mm-hmm. raise their own eggs ever. It's not like other birds where sometimes they raise their eggs and sometimes they don't, depending on different resource things. No, they just don't. Um, and the relationship... Is truly parasitic, though, for these host birds, because like I was saying, birds grow fast. Cowbirds are pretty big compared to the birds they, like, compete with. So you'll just have this chick that is also adapted to hatch early, earlier than other birds. So it hatches early. It's already bigger than them. Hatches earlier than them. Outcompetes all of them and often kills off the rest of the um, nestmates. Uh, Not all birds go along with it. There's definitely birds that recognize the eggs aren't theirs. Um, like, for example, robins. They have 
brilliant blue eggs. Mm-hmm. They're pretty famous for that. And a cowbird has like this speckled gray and dark brown kind of looking egg. Sure. It's not blue. Robins can sometimes, or often, depending on where you are, um, recognize the cowbird eggs and push them out of the nest. Sometimes they raise them, though. It's uh, kind of confusing sometimes why birds wouldn't really realize but um, birds are, are not, hmm. a lot of birds are operating on a more instinctual level of brain function. There's, of course, some very intelligent birds out there. But a lot of ones are, are very not hardwired. Yeah, okay. So they're not flexible in recognizing these, these things. Um, the common cuckoo is also really interesting because, like, the cuckoo as a whole, the species, does parasitize, like, a bunch of different birds. But, like, an individual female would specialize in just one type. So, like, this cuckoo only ever lays her eggs in the dunnock bird nest or the reed warbler bird nest. Um, And they have genes that regulate the egg coloration and egg appearance. To replicate. That are passed down exclusively from mother to, well, to the males. But, like, to daughter. Yeah. Um allowing the females to mimic the egg coloration of that species that they specialize in. But like a different cuckoo down the tree would have a different looking egg and specialize in a different looking bird. And are those still the same species of cuckoo? That's such a good question. I was reading about um, the reason that there's no speciation is because the male, when the males pass along their genes, they can kind of mix things up because they can pass on the gene they got from their mother. Okay. So there is enough mixing just because of the males. But in general, the females will parasitize the nests of the species that raise them. In general, okay. they pass that down along their families matrilineally. Okay. Yeah. Cool. It, very cool. Cuckoos are cool. And they're also one of the birds that's like way bigger than any other bird that raises them. And it's so funny seeing them like they could just eat that parent. Anyways. <laughs> well, and they're integral to clock making, so we don't get rid of them. Yeah, I've always been confused about that. They are way bigger than the little birds in the clock. When I saw a picture of a cuckoo for the first time, I got really confused. <laughs> I see. Um, so, yeah, I find that all, like, birds are pretty fascinating. And bird song is super fascinating. A little bit technical. I'll try and um, I'll try and not be boring. That's my promise to you all. For our next episode, which is going to be part two of Bird Behaviors and Adaptations, bird song. Um, so catch us in a few weeks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new.